0: Welcome to Latte with a Lawyer, a podcast dedicated to bringing you the stories of some of America's most successful lawyers,
1: figuring out what makes them tick, how they creatively solve problems, and how others,
0: aspiring to be them, can follow in their footsteps.
1: Okay, everybody, uh, welcome to another episode of Latte with a Lawyer. I'm your host, Jonathan Brickman. And this afternoon, at least on the East Coast and in the morning on the West Coast, we have J.D. Harriman from Foundation Law. Nice to have you, JD.
0: Thank you. Good morning or good afternoon.
1: There you go. We're splitting time zones. We're right on the cusp of it. So uh, yeah, it looks like you're still drinking coffee. And to keep with the theme of the show, what's your morning beverage of choice?
0: I have cappuccino or two every single morning. And uh, I get it from my great Nespresso machine with a built-in frother. I love it. I'm I'm hooked on it.
1: Yeah no, I recently heard that uh, we're about to uh, inherit an espresso machine. So you're a big fan of that. Yeah. Good. Very good. Yeah, I, I would. I, I just mainly survive on the supermarket coffee, which is
0: Which supermarket though.
1: It's fine. <laughs> nothing spe- Nothing special. And then you know, if I go. Every once in a while, when I'm out, i'll I'll get a uh, I do like a latte because frankly, I don't like really strong, strong coffee, so
0: yeah.
1: I like to water it down. So, um, so tell us about uh, the type of work that you do out there
0: in l a. Yeah, I'm a patent attorney and um have been that for a long time, which means I also have a degree in engineering. In my case, it's electrical engineering and material science. Uh, these days I mostly represent early stage companies. That's my, my preference. Uh, I used to be at the biggest law firm in the world, BLA Piper, represented a lot of fortune 500 companies. Mm-hmm. I did uh, many, many patents for Intel, Qualcomm, I did the first 20 patents for Pixar. I've done patents for Disney. Uh, in fact, if you've ever been to any of the Disney parks and used Fastpass, I wrote the patent for that. So I guess I'm a, an American hero.
1: I saw that in your background. I was going to ask you about that. So thanks for bringing that up. That's uh, that's pretty interesting. And Pixar, Pixar. I mean, uh, I'm also an engineer from Carnegie Mellon, which is where it got oh, wow. its start. That's and, right. And uh, so I, I remember that. Set. That was quite a story uh, until they got take uh, acquired by Disney, right? At some point.
0: So everyone knows it's uh, Carnegie Hall, Carnegie Mellon. But his name is Andrew Carnegie. I never understood why it's a different pronunciation just because it's not a building.
1: Well, it's you know, uh, tomato, tomato. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's it's I guess it's just ignorance is really what it is. I mean,
0: but, I mean, it's a city that pronounces Houston as Houston, so what, what can you expect?
1: They, there you go. Yeah. So uh, wait, did I say wait? Did I say Carnegie Mellon? It's Andrew yeah. Carnegie. Yeah. No, he's yeah. quite a character. Actually, I can remember uh, I was in London, and I was taking a uh, a taxi back from my meetings to the airport. And it was just by chance. I had a uh, a taxi driver who grew up in Scotland, and he told this. He told me this story about Andrew Carnegie. What a story! He's uh, he came from nothing, and uh, the the taxi driver was telling me the story about how we used to play. Um, on on front of this uh, state as a kid, and they used to throw them off the uh, the grounds because it was private property. Well, when Andrew Carnegie became very famous and rich, he went and purchased that property, made it a public playground, just to get them back. <laughs> That's really cool. The great, it was a great story from the taxi driver. So you never know who you're going to talk to on these uh, these journeys. So material science. So, I mean, in order to be a patent attorney, I mean, it almost goes out saying, right, you have to have a, some tech discipline, right? That's correct. That's correct. Okay.
0: In fact, it was only relatively recently that they accepted computer science as that tech background. Before it was physics and engineering pretty much across the board. But now computer science is recognized and accepted as tech background to be a patent attorney.
1: Oh, why is that? I didn't realize that. So it was until recently just an engineering background right. why why is that what's what's the uh, what's the history Wh- of
0: that wheels turn slowly wheels turn slowly so like is this going to be a flash in the pan should we really make the effort uh, i don't know they just you know institutions move slowly i think that's the reason
1: but what was the thinking behind it though that that engineering was the discipline you needed to have to be a patent attorney
0: I don't know the, the background, I just guess that because you're dealing with inventors, you have to be able to speak their language and understand what they are talking about in a way to present it to the patent office. So it's helpful to have an engineering background.
1: Okay. That's an interesting combination, by the way, I was going to, you know, material science, electrical engineering, they typically don't go together, do they?
0: No, that was unusual. In fact. Uh, It's now called material science when I majored in it at uh, the Ohio State University. It was called ceramic engineering, which Uh is all silicon-based materials. It did include plates and glasses and coffee cups and toilets, but also insulators and um, any sort of uh, semiconductor material. So as it turned out for me, uh, I'm a little bit older. The uh, rise of the semiconductors uh, was a perfect match because they are a combination of silicon-based materials and electrical circuits, so I was in uh, good demand, and that's one of the reasons I had uh, a lot of work from Intel. I could speak to both the fabricators and the circuit people with equal uh, skill.
1: Uh, Very interesting. It's interesting. My my father-in-law actually uh, was a ceramics engineer at Penn State University
0: yeah well, uh, not a lot of schools had it. That was
1: one of them. No, not many did. Um, and and I, I was a civil engineer. Actually, it's funny. I started as an electrical engineer. After the first semester, I wasn't a very good student at the time. I just wasn't applying myself, and, and I dropped it. I I changed to civil engineering. And uh, but I did take a course in materials science. And that was not easy stuff. I found that to be very tricky.
0: Difficult. Yeah, some of it can be especially um, there's something that has to do with close centered packing and and packing of molecules. And it's very difficult. I did not do well in that class either.
1: That was heady stuff. I remember that it was, it it was not easy, but uh, anyway, that's interesting. So, so tell me about the uh, sort of the journey here. Like why did you become, and why'd you go into engineering? How'd you become an attorney?
0: So I grew up in a very small town in Ohio. 932 people and uh, coal mining, steel mill, farming. Nobody went to college, uh, but I have an identical twin brother, gorgeous. And he and I happened to score very high on standardized tests, like top 1%, top 2%. And so the school guidance counselor said, Hey, you're smart enough to go to college and helped grease the wheels and got us into college. Our outside would probably be a foreman in the mines somewhere right now. And uh, once I got to college, I you have a lot of survey classes, and I had one in, in engineering, and I loved it. And I said that's what I want to do, and uh, majored in engineering. And I like both electrical and ceramics side. So it's not a double major; they didn't have it at the time. But I took all the classes yeah. to have a double major. And uh, I never practiced as an engineer because my twin brother and I decided to go to New York for a year and L.A. for a year to be actors. We had been acting all through high school in some outdoor dramas, and we wanted to be uh, famous actors. It did not work out, though.
1: Of- okay. So you and decided to go to law school?
0: He got the idea to go to law school. We're very competitive, and I did not want him to have a better career than me. And so I said, oh, I'm going to law school as well. And here's the level of, of competitiveness. He had already signed up for the LSAT. And I said, "Oh, how do you do that?" And he, said, he looked at me and he said, "If you can't figure that out on your own, maybe you shouldn't be a lawyer." <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> there you go. I figured that. We both went
0: to USC Law School together, and where um, I was class president, and he was class vice president. So.
1: And he's still competing. Complete nepotism.
0: Still, uh, still, he's he's a good lawyer, and um, we're not in the same field, so no
1: okay. Very good. Well, what was the town in Ohio that you grew up in?
0: It's called Jewett, Ohio, and um, the closest real city would have been Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, about an hour east of that. We're near the Ohio River in that part of the country, the eastern part of Ohio. There's yeah, that's what hill. I would have guessed. Yeah, there's some hills there, and it's it's quite pretty. The rest, the rest of Ohio is pretty flat, but this is a, a lovely rural area.
1: Like near Youngstown area?
0: South of Youngstown, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, Steubenville, Stubenville. I was going to say yeah.
1: Steubenville. I, the yep. only reason why I know Steubenville is because my dad was an orthopedic surgeon, and he used to, believe it or not, used to get equipment from Steubenville. That's very surprising. There was a supplier there that had um, orthopedic tools or wow. in Steubenville, Ohio. Yep.
0: Yeah, of all places. one.
1: Wow. isn't that interesting?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and, and by the way, he was he uh, he was an electrical engineer. Uh, as well I went to Carnegie Mellon so that's why I know Pittsburgh um, and he uh, he ended up becoming a doctor but that's what I started electrical engineer because of him and that was probably not a good decision because I, it just wasn't my thing
0: <laughs> did you ever practice as a civil engineer
1: I, I did I did I, I I worked a few years as an engineer before I got the bug and realized I, I was more of a business-minded person so I went back to business school um and, and uh, but yeah, and, and it's a, it was a great background uh, in terms of thinking and thought process, um, but it wasn't my thing to practice engineering.
0: So I think uh, it is a good background. It hurt me, I think, a little bit in law school because I thought there was a right answer because in engineering, you're taught, there's an answer. Yep. And in law school, it's a process. Right. And so I was, I kept looking for the answer and it, uh, I, I think I struggled a little bit at the beginning of law school, so I figured that out.
1: Okay, but you, I mean, you come to an answer. It's just that there's lots of answers, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Um. And and how did you and and why did you pick patent law? Did you know you wanted to do that, or again, you just sort of that was natural, just sort of organic. So Joe Walsh from the Eagles
0: says, "When you live your life, it's full of chaos and, and craziness. When you look backwards, it looks like the best written novel you've ever read." I, that's always stuck with me because I wanted to be a corporate lawyer. I thought, oh, yeah, corporate, that's the thing to do. And after 40 rejection letters from law firms, uh, the guys counselor at the school who had been begging me to at least interview with a patent firm because I was the only one in school that had the background for it, I finally said, well, okay, I'll give it a whirl. And during the lunch uh, at my first interview, one of the partners left, and I said, oh, this is not going well he ran back to the office to draft an offer letter to hand me at the end of lunch <laughs> so I said "They, these are smart people, they recognize my incredible value and uh, I started there and uh, they represented all the big companies in Silicon Valley it was an LA based firm but they had all the Silicon Valley, Apple and Intel and Sun, and companies that don't even exist anymore but were hot at the time and it was fantastic, fantastic Yeah, that's exciting work experience. sure,
1: you're you were like right in the middle of all that excitement. Yeah.
0: Um, Met Steve Jobs more than a few times. He oh, never, yeah. He never remembered me once. But, <laughs>
1: uh, what was your impression of Steve Jobs? I mean, obviously, he was quite a superstar character.
0: Yeah, quick. Quick. Um, he has a reputation of being prickly, but he protected his engineers. Um, and he, you could just say a few sentences to him and he would get it right mm. away. And he had one engineer he liked so much, who hated lawyers, and we were only allowed to initially speak with him uh, through letters, because he didn't want to meet us. And then based on some of our answers, I think he thought, oh, these guys are idiots, and he was willing to meet us in person, but only if we wore jeans and bought pizza. So, <laughs> and Steve was like, that's his rule, that's his rule, you've got to obey his rules. So,
1: oh, So that was always his persona. Yeah. The casual, okay.
0: Yeah, uh, he did not when he was wearing suits uh, at Apple or any of his other companies. We worked with him at Next and uh, Pixar.
1: So. Yeah, yeah, so in- interesting. Yeah, so I mean, he was way ahead of his time. I mean, as we moved, we moved in that direction, I mean, he really was a visionary. He truly was in so many ways, wasn't he?
0: Yeah, he was probably the best editor the world has ever seen. He's only on one patent as an adventurer. So people always use the Edison comparison, but he's he was an editor. He would get something and immediately see how to make it perfect, not just better, but perfect. He mm. would say you need to do X, Y, Z, and and then it will be ready. And he was right. That's as we know.
1: Yeah, no, he was uh, he was brilliant. So, so be- besides the Disney Pass, which was, you know, thank you for that. That saves a little bit of time. What were there any other big uh Patents that you worked on that were memorable.
0: Uh, the most memorable that people would have heard about would be um, laser tag. I did some of the early laser tag patents, and so I guess parents love me because they get a go through Disneyland faster, and they have a place for birthday parties for their kids. But I did a lot of work on microprocessors for Intel. I did a lot of work on um, with Pixar. They had patents on on how hair moves, on how light create shadows. And I worked on, on all these uh, patents for them. And uh, I've done a lot of work in encryption, things that help protect us. Even to this day, I, I got to work with some of the smartest encryption people, as well as the, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, uh, the real true rocket scientists. I've done mm. rocket patents. And uh, it's been an exciting month. I, I talked to the smartest people in the world every day, learned what they spent years figuring out and I learn it in a couple of hours and then get to do it again the next day, it's fantastic.
1: So how do you, I mean, how do you have those conversations? Again, they're so deep in, into those areas and you're trying to pick it up on the fly just to have enough working knowledge to help them. I And mean, what is that interaction like?
0: It uh, was tough, but then I ended up developing something I call the five questions, which is forces them into the narrative that helps helps give them boundaries. Everybody likes boundaries, and so it helps focus them on how to describe their inventions. So I just go through these five questions and and uh, I found that's the best way to get them to talk about it. And I'm not expected to know what they're talking about because it's new. Sure. So I have enough to know uh, what I don't know. That's, uh, I remember Rumsfeld saying, you know, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns. But I have some known unknowns, and I'm um, asked them to fill it in and uh, follow up with them, and it's I'm just, I guess I'm a good learner after all these these years of learning about so many different inventions.
1: Yeah, you understand the framework. But I mean, what are the most important um, elements of doing what you do to be successful at it?
0: For me, you have to have a blend of the technical background because you have to have that in your patent applications. But I think you have to be a little bit of a creative writer because if the patent is ever going to be in court, jury of lay people who are going to have to understand it. So I try to write my patents with a, a little bit of a narrative so that someone will feel good about themselves and not be overwhelmed. There'll be parts in there that say, I get it. I understand that. That's a great metaphor. And now I think I get what they're trying to do. I want them to feel like they, they can understand it. And finally, there's the uh, legal aspects of it which have to be met so that the patent will be uh, satisfied. And the, the engineering has to be there. I, my pens are so good. I, I want to brag a little bit, but sometimes uh, the marketing people get them and just quote them verbatim when they're trying to describe their product. And uh, they say, I like the way JD did that. Uh, that. That's really a good way to describe what we're doing. So we're using them.
1: Well, listen, as a business person and a marketing person, that's a, that speaks volumes to me because you know, what I find as in general, I'm generalizing, but from what I've seen, most highly technical products, the marketing is horrible. It's very hard to understand it, and you have no idea what these businesses do. So, if the marketing people are taking your patent and using that as marketing, that, that's pretty good. That's a high compliment. It doesn't always happen.
0: It's happened a few times, I'll say.
1: Yeah, um, but I think the skill in life in general, and I'm sure you'll agree with this from what you just said is to boil very complex concepts down into easily digestible, understandable things.
0: Yeah, and do you find that your legal background helps you filter almost instantly things that don't make sense? And and people are trying to buffalo you a lot. From car mechanics to advertisements, you can immediately see, oh, I see what's going on here and there's a path. Right. Yeah, it's a great background for life. Yes.
1: For some reason, it's interesting. I I don't know what it is about this podcast, but I've had a lot, a high percentage of patent attorneys that want to be on here and tell the story. Huh. What do you think that is?
0: I'm a little surprised by that because yeah. by nature, engineers are a little introverted, I think. And so even if they go to law school, I'm, I would say that most of the patent attorneys I know would be less like me and more like typical engineers on that spectrum,
1: and so I'm surprised and they reach out to you. I'm surprised too i I've had some i mean I had a woman uh, if she's listening, I say this with the highest praise. She was really funny A, uh, you know science, not not engineering but a uh, science uh biotech um, and really funny <laughs> from the from Queens, and I said, you know, if, if if the career doesn't work out as a patent attorney, you'll be a stand-up comedian. I mean, it was wow. really outgoing, funny, 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 with the whole New York chic thing. So now I've I've, oh. I've been uh, actually surprised uh, by by that as anecdotally. Yeah.
0: Wow. I lived in Astoria briefly when I moved to New York, and uh, I thought there were there were a lot of paternities there because there was a bunch of Greek graffiti. I didn't realize it was where all the Greeks lived and uh it was a great neighborhood i really had a good time
1: yeah yeah well i mean listen it, it, as you know if you spend time in new york i mean greeks and jews and italians and muslims and irish and everything else right yeah. especially story, very that's a real melting pot yeah
0: it was great you hear so many languages on an everyday basis yeah and uh you feel like you're in the world yeah yeah, yeah. excellent um, so your firm litigates, I, I mean, I, you,
1: you sort of alluded to that. I mean, tell me about the, uh, the litigation that you get involved
0: with. So yeah, foundation law group is a virtual firm and has been from inception. And it's one of the few full service virtual firms. There are quite a few patent virtual firms. I have to admit but not a lot of full service virtual firms. And, uh, we have litigators, a lot of former DLA hyper partners are in the firm. And we do high-stakes litigation, and we add contractors as we need to help support that. Uh, we were just involved in – it had some IP aspects to it. There was a partnership dispute uh, over the ownership of some IP, asset, uh, oh. IP assets. And um, we have done patent and infringement defense, and we've done patent infringement plaintiff's work uh, as well. But the litigation is mostly commercial litigation, I would say.
1: So give give me an example of a case that was litigated. And I assume you got a a trial, right? You have the jury trials associated with these two? Yes. Uh, So uh,
0: I am not a trial attorney. I I would support the litigation. I would provide the technical aspects. In a patent litigation, there are a lot of things that are required. And um, something called a Markman hearing and Markman interpretation of the claims, which is required, you have to both say what your interpretation of the claims of a patent. The patent has claims. That's where the protection comes from. Yep. These, these long sentences at the mm-hmm. end. So I would do the market analysis. I would do infringement analysis. I would do um, validity studies to see if the patent is even valid or how it could be attacked for that. And I would provide those arrows to the litigator to use in the litigation.
1: Okay and 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 again, I mean, some of these are jury trials. You actually have to get in front of a jury.
0: Correct. So patent litigation often chooses a jury versus a judge.
1: Oh, often does. interesting. Yeah.
0: That seems to be the preference.
1: and so and so what what tools do you use to get ready for those jury trials? How do you prepare? I mean, maybe not you, but your litigators.
0: No, it, well, in a way, as I mentioned before, my patents. Even I would say less than one-tenth of one percent of patents ever even get near a court. But I write every single one of mine as if it's going to be going to court, and I'm ready. My patents are court-ready when I write them. And for the litigators, they spend a lot of time with me trying to get a metaphor or a narrative that they can present. There are a lot of laws around what claims mean, but I've seen judge after judge just stop in the middle of the trial, point to each side and say you tell me what this invention is. Mm -hmm. And they'll both try to say it's what the claims say, Your Honor. And they will not accept that. And then they'll make you say it in some sort of layman terms. And then the judge will pick one and that will often decide what's going to win. And it could often be wrong. And so you have to be ready for that. And so I again with the an easy to understand narrative that favors us, I want, I want to be the one the judge picks if the judge does that. They don't always, but sometimes they do. And then that's what the definition is the rest of the trial. So I want mine to win.
1: But what moves the jury? I mean, you're talking about the judge, but what what moves the jury to your side?
0: Yeah, I want them to be on the side of the inventor, even if they're in a big company. So we focus on the inventor, uh, number one, and not the company. And say, this is this person's great invention. They've been working so hard on it. And not focus so much on Apple and how much money they have or Intel. Uh, or Samsung. I've done mitigation work for Samsung. Secondly, again, you want the juror to feel good about learning something. Mm-hmm. They say in, in screenwriting, you should try to teach the audience that the audience will respond better in your movie. if They also learn something, not just see a story. They all want to learn something. That's why you see so many weird jobs in movies they can educate the audience. So I want my jurors to learn something and to go home and tell their friends and their family. Hey, I know how displays work. You know, they're just like a million little box there. That's how they work. I'm very excited about that and make them feel good.
1: Yep. Interesting. Um, I was going to say to you. So, um, I was going to, I'm trying to think, I kind of lost my train of thought there, but I was going to ask you, um, just so for the people out there that think about um you know doing the type of law that you do, I mean what what are the key attributes or traits that you think you need to have to be good at patent law?
0: I mean, you have to be a fast reader. Fast reader, any any type of, type of law, you have to be a fast reader. Mm. And because there's so so much reading. And um I think well, to be a patent lawyer, if, if you're an engineer who's thinking about being a patent lawyer uh, already, you're probably going to be one because just thinking about it means you're likely to be one. And you just have to be willing to listen to people outside your technical field. So my career has been almost, I would say, 70% software, even though I did not major in, in computer science in college, but I've yeah. learned software really well. I do, I'm an expert on software patents. I'm good at getting them. Here and in Europe, where it's it's even harder to get. And so I've been willing to learn. It's, it's a lifetime of learning. So you have to be willing to expose yourself to other fields. I, I read a lot of books. I do a lot of background before I meet with an inventor. I have a few days and I will do a lot of research on whatever they're about to talk to me about, just so I can have some sensible questions and can do some comparing and contrasting. Uh, so the ability to... Uh, You can't force the inventor to put it in a box that you think it should be in. But you want to at least see if you can get them to some boundary again, where you have a chance of explaining.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, do you have to when you when you say you're an expert in software? I mean, are you actually learning, you know, current methods, coding concepts?
0: No, it's I don't have to know any software languages. But to do software patent applications, you have to do flow diagrams. I don't know if you remember those from sure. college days. And nobody actually does flow diagrams really that much except patent attorneys. So they're, they're a staple in software patent applications. So I, I'm really good at doing flow diagrams and decision blocks and sure. and, uh, and going through that. So uh, that's something you do have. I did have to learn how to do flow diagrams. Yeah, well, interesting.
1: What what are the care? I mean, is there? what Can you like uh, categorize or characterize the inventors that you work with as a group? Like, what are they like? I mean, are they are there similar traits, characteristics?
0: That is a really really good question, and I think that they are all. I, I've met very few what I would call polymaths who are good at many many things. A few, um, okay. they've been impressive. And um, I'm going to answer this question. I want to tell you a quick story sure. about that, one of those. But I think they are gifted and driven. And they they see things that people just can't see. And and it's almost like I would slap my head every time when they explain the problem and then their solution. And I always want to say, how how is this that no one did it before? Right. And they say... No one thought of it, and this will solve this problem. Uh, it's really, I help them focus on what the problem is they're solving. Sometimes they just want to say, hey, here's my work, and I'm both. And I nice. to no, what problem are you solving? And when they get to that level, it's it just shows their dedication and their, first of all, their realization that the problem could be solved, and then, or needed to be solved even, and then their uh, solution. Always so, again, and it's just... Uh, shows how they're driven and just into this field I guess
1: so one of the polymaths
0: I worked with someone from Caltech and he um he had some medical thing and wasn't getting the kind of uh, response he was getting from doctors and so he went to Harvard Medical School attended Harvard Medical School and got a degree in medicine and then invented his own medicine that he could use for the condition which worked really well although it had some psychotropic effects but he also invented a um putter and got a patent on a putter as well as a lot of software and encryption related inventions he would, just, could just dabble anywhere and mm. successful. Well, just one of those you know people the da vinci types that was just smart in all fields
1: yeah i mean you yeah, know smart talented people are good at Typically good at a lot of things. If someone said to me, a professor at a university, you know, you know, some people do research, some people good teachers, some people good. Sure, he said, so, you know, busy people—they're busy at everything. They are just—they're exceptional. And uh, that that always that always stuck with me. It's like you know, the, the the exceptional people tend to do everything well. They're not just you know, they're not linear. They're they do lots of things. Maybe you've seen that as well. Yeah, it's
0: fun to run into those people. Yeah, but it's it's interesting. You mentioned the research. So uh, one thing that the inventors do not have in common is that they're not typically researchers mm. because they are more like true engineers, and engineers who are hired to solve problems. So, so I have some faculty inventors here and there who maybe would be more on the research side, but most of my inventors are uh, engineers. Uh, these days with uh, software, you can not know how to code, but you can say, I, we need X and Y to solve this problem. And then they can engage someone to, to, to sure. buy that solution. And uh, I had a lot of startups that uh, work that way.
1: Yeah, that's very true. I mean, it, it's interesting. You know, I've worked with a lot of startups um, over the years. And uh, one of the questions I always ask them, Is their moat? I said, "What is your moat so no one else can do what, you know, essentially what you're doing, right? So they can't replicate it." I mean, the reality is when you talk to a lot of these people that I've worked with, very bright people, a lot of the smart people out there thinking along the same lines and similar, right? So how, you know, what is it that you can do to really protect your idea? Not not so easy to do that, and I guess that's where where you come in.
0: Right, that's what I try to help them. So, And I, I think I bring what has helped my career is I bring a business strategic approach to my client's business. So there are some that I know I could get, but we would never be able to tell if they were infringed. And uh, because you wouldn't be able to get inside your competitor's you know, factory or business and know if they did extra lie to make the product, you couldn't reverse engineer. So it'd be complete guesswork. And maybe that's a patent you don't want to apply for. Maybe you want to try to keep that as a trade secret. Mm. Because when the patent is published uh, and people could say, oh, I'm going to do that. And I know they won't be able to tell how I did it. so I can freely infringe. So, or some that.
1: variation on, right, is aren't there like sort of shades of the patent that are, allow you to, to compete but not be exactly the same thing?
0: you have good insight that uh, changed recently. You used to have to disclose the best mode that you know of of practicing the patent. So there are many cases where there was one that was not economical to do, and that was disclosed in a a good way. They didn't disclose Mm -hmm. and they lost their patents. That rule is still in effect, but the consequence of failing to disclose the best mode is zero. (laughs) There's no consequence anymore. So effectively, even though it's a duty, you can ignore that duty. So, yes, you can try to keep some things behind. It's a risk. It's a risk to do that because the claims have to be supported by the specification and if you're going to go to litigation. It's, it's a tightrope to walk, but there are, like you said, there are some things you can do to have your cake and eat it too.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, I'll, I'm going to have to, we could go, we could probably have this conversation for a long time. So, um, I'll wrap it up and, uh, And and just to to leave with the audience, I mean, what do you want them to know about about you, your firm, and the best way to connect if they want to engage with you?
0: That I am happy to work with startups. We have very favorable rates and conditions for startups. I love working with them, and I think I have a lot to offer them. I have good ways to get them protection and make them fundable. That's what I offer to startups, a way to help make you fundable in a way that you might not otherwise be. Secondly, I started going expert witnessing work. uh, And so I would like people to know that I'm available as expert witness. In fact, I just did, uh, I was a trade secret expert in one of the biggest espionage, corporate espionage trials, criminal espionage cases, for an accused Chinese spy uh, a couple of years ago. So it was kind of a big deal. And uh, I really like that work. And I think I'm good.
1: Oh, good. So everyone listening, we, we have an expert witness here for you.
0: And finally, I still sing around town in Beverly Hills at restaurants here and there. And uh, I'm looking for representation. Okay,
1: excellent. All right. Well, listen, uh, yeah. every, everybody, uh, we've uh, spent a, a lot of good time here with JD Harriman from Foundation Law, and uh, this show is sponsored by Motion Track, which is a legal tech platform that helps uh, litigators uh, prepare for cases. Mediation or trials with our platform. So thanks again. JD is really uh, interesting spending time. Thank you, Jonathan. you. You bet. All right.